0: So instead of opening statements, we thought we'd do kind of a get to know you type question. And this one is, what's your favorite place in Seattle? It could be a restaurant, a bookstore, a coffee shop, a park. The place that just says Seattle to you. It's your favorite place in Seattle. Let's start with you, Carrie.
1: I would say the Seattle Center Fountain because it brings me joy every time I go to see people playing in public together. It reaffirms my faith in humanity.
2: I would say L.A. Bay Books. It's just a walk-in, that smell just makes me relax. And it's a place you can go, and actually you can go anywhere in the world depending on which book you pick up.
3: Um, So my first question for the two of you, and so for this one we'll start with Jenny, is about um, supervised drug consumption sites or injection sites. I know you have both said that you support this concept. Um, how will we solve the problem of where to locate them if we, could, if we go forward with it? And what do you think of the proposal that Danny Wesney mentioned recently about hosting them in hospitals?
2: And I have one minute. Is that right? Or ish? Ish. ish. ish.
3: So at the beginning of the campaign, you
2: know, people were kind of surprised that I would be supportive of safe consumption sites. Um, because I'd been a federal prosecutor for a period of time, and they thought we couldn't do that. The reason I am is because I was involved in this issue when we did safe needle exchange, and we had some of the same arguments against those that we're hearing now. You're promoting illegal drug use, et cetera, et cetera. But we've seen those needle exchange programs actually have had harm reduction. They've saved lives. But now we're in the middle of this raging opiate crisis and heroin problem on our streets, and what we say is, take your safe needle and go out to a park, a car, a doorway. There's no park in Seattle that you can walk in that doesn't have needles. And so one of the things I think we have to do is create these spaces where there can be a healthcare person there to make sure that someone doesn't overdose, but just as importantly, to make sure that there's someone there that can get someone into addiction treatment Immediately. Immediately. Because at the end of the day, that's the only thing that will be the long-term harm reduction. So I think the way we cite it is we talk to neighborhoods about it. The more I talk about this issue, people one-on-one, even people who are opposed at the beginning, when you sit down and talk to them, understand how it can be harm reduction. So you talk to them about where to put it, you have deep neighborhood engagement, and then you also promise you know there's a public safety element you will make sure that you have police around that neighborhood so that it does not become just a magnet for drug dealers. Um, And so that it really is a facility where people can get hooked up with help if they need to, but you also try to keep it safe. And I think that Seattle will step up with that. On Danny's proposal of the hospitals, I think one of the problems is that there may be uh, laws against doctors and nurses in a facility like that doing that, but I think having them close to one might be a great idea.
1: So this is one of those heartbreaking questions about the state of our world, because overdoses from opioid addictions are the number one cause of death for people under 50. And let's just recognize that this is a really deep national problem, and we need to figure it out in our city, but so does every other city, because this is a tragedy in our country. I am in favor of safe consumption sites, but we, yes, we have to have medical professionals on staff to be there to keep people safe, to be there in case they start to OD, to intervene. We also have to make sure that there's access to treatment, because if you go in and you're ready to stop using, we need to offer treatment then and there, not say come back in three weeks when we have a spot for you, because that doesn't work. So for sighting, I think it's intriguing to think about how to put them at or near hospitals when there's access to care so close by, so we should definitely pursue that as a possibility. We also need to make sure we're citing them with neighbors at the table, because there are a lot of questions, and we do need to get it right, and we do need to make sure we're listening, we're understanding concerns, we're answering concerns, and we are making the right commitment towards keeping the area safe and keeping the area clean. And I think there's a lot to learn from the needle exchange program. The, the sites where we have needle exchange are pretty well run and pretty well settled into their communities, so they've learned a lot that we can adopt for this challenge here. Thank you. Um, So Carrie, I'm going to ask about property
3: crime rates in Seattle now. Um, According to the FBI, Seattle has a pretty low rate of violent crime, but one of the highest rates of property crimes. And I'm just curious if you've been hearing a lot about this on the campaign trail and what your ideas are for tackling that.
1: Yeah, we've been hearing a lot about it. I think it's slightly misreported. I think the data that Scott Lindsay was using maybe isn't exactly accurate, but it's still high and it's still a problem and it's still something that people are facing. So yes, I think we need to keep doing more community-based policing. I think part of our police reform has to include police force—the police force out in community, talking to folks, building trust, being there, doing the proactive work to prevent these hotspots from happening. Because they are so busy with 911 calls and helping people in crisis, they basically have stopped doing the normal policing work that keeps a community healthy and does the preventative work to prevent problems before they start. So we absolutely have to get the staffing right for the police force in our reform process. And I think we also need to recognize that nobody's happy with the system we have now. There are people who call 911 and are mad it takes 15 minutes for them to get there. There are communities that are afraid that if the police do show up, they might be less safe than if they solved the problem themselves. So we've got to keep going on police reform around all these issues but I think, you know, getting the staffing level right is the number one most important solution and making sure that we understand the hotspots and we go to the hotspots with lead. We need to do a full implementation of the law enforcement assisted diversion program because this works downtown and we need to have it in every single neighborhood. And when you say getting the staffing right, you are saying hiring more police officers? Well, I think look at, you know, the talk to the police officers and the precinct <coughs> level management and talk about how they're spending their time and how we can shift how they're spending their time. It might mean adding more staff, but it also might mean relieving some of the other burdens so that they can spend more time on this.
2: So. One of the great things I've done during the campaign is I go out and do walking tours of neighborhoods, and I'm up to a couple dozen now, and at the end of them, sit down with small business owners and employees to see what is happening in a neighborhood. I've heard this everywhere, Amy. It's, it's a real thing. I, I don't know what the exact numbers are, but there is definitely an increase in property crimes, um, and I don't have the data to know it for sure, but I can tell you from my past work, I am absolutely sure that it's tied to the opiate. Uh, addiction on our streets. And we are seeing more and more of these property crimes are what we used to call snatching grabs or, or crashing grabs, where well, they'll break into a car, they'll break into a house, they're trying to steal the thing they can turn the quickest to sell it to get drugs. Um, and so until we address the uh, opiate addiction problem we have in our city, we will not see a measurable decrease in property crimes. We can do all sorts of law enforcement strategies and neighborhood strategies, which I wanna talk about, but we also have to get at the root of it. We have to deal with this issue. Now, what can we do before we deal with that issue? We can do a number of strategies that worked in the 90s related to property crimes and others, Um, We have to reinstitute, for example, some neighborhoods don't have neighborhood watch anymore and block watch. It really works. When neighbors know who they are and are actually out looking for each other and have well-lit streets, it can really reduce the amount of property crime, whether it's in vehicles or homes. The second thing we have to do is increase the number of police officers whose job it is just to be out walking the streets. And that doesn't necessarily have to be a patrol officer, It could be what we used to call the CSOs, or the community safety officers, service officers. Um, And so their job is to know who's there. Walk around, they know the business owners, they know the people on the street, they sometimes would even know the people who are experiencing homelessness in that neighborhood, and to have that continual kind of connection and presence. That's gonna be requiring hiring additional people, but our police department actually has had depleted resources because while we've added officers, we've had a huge number of retirements. So I would look to multiple strategies to work on the property crime issue. All
0: right, uh, I want to ask about affordable housing and housing. I want to ask about middle class housing actually, the housing for teachers and other people in this community where the average price of a home in Seattle right now is up to $750,000, last time I checked. It's kind of a two-part question. The first part is, and I'm not sure I know the answer to this, uh, where do you want the price to be? At the end of your term as mayor? Do you want it to be higher? Do you want it to be a million dollars? You want it to be 750? Do you want it to be half a million? Where do you want the price to go? What's your goal, Karen? Then let's start with you. <laughs>
1: That's a hard question. I'm going to alienate somebody with my answer. <laughs> so I think that the housing affordability crisis is complicated. If it were easy, we would have solved it already. But I want to start with why it's happening because this is not natural and this is not normal. A housing market is not supposed to work this way. So I want to make sure we do the deep analysis of the macroeconomics of this and understand what is causing such a rapid increase because it's not just growth there's something happening speculation in our housing market where more and more people are piling on because of our housing prices rising And using our homes as a commodity, using houses as if they're an investment, sheerly to make money off of instead of as a place for people to live. So we've got to understand exactly the dynamics of this. Is it private equity firms starting up, buying up starter homes? Is it people buying second, third, and fourth homes just for investment value? Is it commercial Airbnb operators? Is it global wealth funds Mm -hmm. that are coming in to look at our our hot property market as basically the best investment out there and just buying up homes to park money in? We've got to get exactly the right dynamic identified and put in a disincentive to block it and go back down to a much more normal steady rate of growth because this is killing all of us. Whether you're a homeowner and you're seeing your property taxes through the roof or whether you are a person trying to buy a starter home and realizing it's you're never going to get there because it's completely out of reach. So we need to do that. We also need to build a lot more affordable housing and we can do that through a lot of techniques. One of them is to look at more fine-grained solutions in the neighborhood with neighbors around should we be looking at duplexes, row houses, backyard cottages, mother-in-laws, We need to focus on ways for you to keep ownership of your homes and have a potential to generate revenue through an apartment that you can rent out in your home so that you can keep your home and stay in it long term. We also need to look at building a lot more affordable housing and this is a combination of getting more money in the state housing trust fund and working with nonprofit housing developers to do workforce housing. To do the kind of housing projects that Capitol Hill Housing and Homesite and many other developers already do, we need to be doing four times as much of that kind of nonprofit housing development as we are. So I think if we do these, you know, strategies from the top, from the bottom, and in the middle, we can build more affordable housing so that our communities can be people at all ages and stages in life, and all income levels being in community together. And we can get our property back down to a normal. Rate of growth. So I would say lower would be good, lower is probably not possible, so hold with what we have at this point. 750? It sounds terrible, but I. Going, I, going, you know, gone. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, where we are now, um, it's really hard to get housing prices to drop the right amount. Either you have a bubble that crashes and they drop severely, that's damaging to a lot of people or they grow too fast, so trying to hold it steady is probably the best we can do.
2: So I think affordability is probably the greatest existential threat to the soul of Seattle. Who we are as a city and who has a place here is tied to affordability. If you look at the growth over the last four years, It has pushed the market so high and has pushed so many people out. You go to the Central District in Rainier Valley and so many families have been displaced. Um, And you look in other areas of the town and there's two parts to affordability. There's the part of, can I get into the marketplace? You know, can I afford the house? Can I afford the rent? And can I stay? Our property taxes have gone up so much, so quickly. People are being pushed out of their homes. And so I think the mayor has to work on both of those things. So one, we need more homes. We need more affordable homes. And that means using every strategy we have to build more affordable housing, and not just low income, but middle income too. Because people who work in Seattle can't afford to live in Seattle. And we want our teachers, our firefighters, you know, the people who we depend on to be able to live in the city. And it's coming to the point where they can't. So we have to use our strategies to build more affordable housing. We have to keep the affordable housing we have. You know, there's a lot of landlords, particularly smaller landlords, who are very responsible and they don't want to raise rents. But when their property taxes go up, the rents go up and people get pushed out. So I want to have a program where I can go to those landlords and say, you keep the rents down, we'll keep your property taxes down. But if you raise the rents, property taxes go up and you have to pay us back. I think the other part of affordability that we don't talk about is the economic side. You know, we are becoming a city that is too stratified by wage, and more and more of the tech workers are making very high salaries, but our teachers, our firefighters, our people who work in our bookstores, our cafes, they can't keep up. So the other thing a mayor has to look at for affordability is how we put money in people's pockets. How do we make sure there is really a shot at making a good wage for the good workers here in Seattle? And that's where I think the mayor can spend a lot of energy and turn the dial on, is really making this a a climate for small business and workers. And so as mayor, those are the things that I really want to focus on. Yes, we have to build, but we can't build our way out of it. We've also got to raise the economic wages for more people, and we've got to bring those property taxes down. All
1: right, and now
0: we go to the number. audience. Make her tell the number. Oh, oh, yes. Sorry, <laughs>
2: 750. So I want everyone in Seattle to be making more than the tech workers are making. <laughs> so they can buy any damn house they want.
1: So I just want to point out that none of those solutions will do anything to drop housing prices. And so what I'm hearing her say is let them rip, make the developers happy, make the wealthy people happy and figure out some way to get people from $15 an hour to $50 an hour so they can afford a house. I don't think that's practical.
2: Well, let just, can I just, yeah, follow up on that? So, if we add more housing to the market, which I wanna do, it will help prices. Um, And, 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 thank you, Alex. Um, One of the things that I think that we disagree a little bit on is there might be some speculation in the market. We don't have the data, but I would people not to take her word or my word on this. Probably the best thing take on housing prices is Sightline, and they just did a piece analyzing what role speculation might have on driving the prices up in Seattle. There's no data to prove it exists. Now it might, but what has happened is in the last four years at least 60,000 people have moved here for jobs that pay over a hundred thousand dollars a year. It's supply and demand. And so we, it's not the only thing driving it, but we absolutely need more housing, low-income and middle-income housing, if we want to get ahead of that. And if we do, that will help dampen the price. You know, we are okay, so it in our
3: neighborhoods.
0: Hey, wait,
2: no, of- I'm sorry. Hey, we're, uh,
3: we're going to have a chance for each of you to ask a question yeah, of each other, help. and we're going to ask a lot of audience questions. So let's just uh, go ahead and skip what i to
0: yeah, we're going to do 10 minutes of audience questions, then we've got, uh, they've got a chance to ask each other a question, then we've got a lightning round, then more audience questions, so the rest of this should be even more exciting. All right. <laughs> okay,
3: so let me ask you about a specific issue to this neighborhood, which the organizers here um, are hoping you'll have an answer on, which is about the Greenwood Senior Center. Um, many of the clients of that center have physical disabilities, and the facility is not accessible. The City of Seattle has proposed transferring the ownership of the building to the Finney Neighborhood Association to start funding those critically needed improvements. Um, in spite of the city's formal recommendation to do this transfer, the legislation still has not been submitted to the City Council to make it happen. How will you, if elected mayor, make the transfer of the Greenwood Senior Center to the PNA a priority for your administration? Um, so that's Jenny first.
2: That's a great question, and when I did my walk of the Finney neighborhood and sat down with some of the business and community leaders afterwards, we talked about this issue. I think it's gotta be a priority for mayor, but I wanna re-engage with the community to make sure we do it right and we're getting the right services. For example, one of the things I heard was, we not only wanna make the senior center accessible, we need more housing for seniors in and around that. And so I think every time that the city is transferring property, it needs to be thinking about how it might be suitable for housing, and if it's not suitable for housing, what housing is around that to add to it? And this is a perfect example of that. You know, I would, um, one last thing is, I, before transfer of any property, so I just want to be honest because you'll see this out there, I would do a moratorium on the transfer of any city property whatsoever until it could be analyzed to whether it's suitable for affordable housing um and that may slow some things down for a period of time i know that this neighborhood action plan has this and it's been under consideration and they've looked at the housing element but for example there's a facility in south lake union where they house the trolley cars and a developer wants to buy it to to put up another office tower in south lake union and i say no we don't need another office tower in south lake union we need housing okay,
1: so I want to make sure I understand, the community wants this to happen and the city's been the roadblock, is that the issue? It sounds like the legislation hasn't happened even though leadership agrees that it should be happening. So okay. they are just
3: trying to make sure you guys, uh, that this issue has your attention
1: in. Yeah, so definitely has my attention now and I will sit down with community groups, hear what you're hoping to get out of this, understand what the delay is and be a convener because the mayor's office, when good things are in motion, cannot be the roadblock. The current mayor's office, well, two mayors ago, mayor's (laughs) office, was often a roadblock. You know, we would, good ideas would come from community, good ideas would come from staff and departmental leadership, and they would go to the mayor's office to die, because the mayor's office was not skillful at the basics of urban planning, not skillful at the basics of management and leadership, and we stalled out on so many things under that mayor. And I am committing. As an engineer, as a wonk, as someone who is a systemic systemic thinker and a systems designer, I've already started with a transition team to lay out the structure in the mayor's office, how it communicates with departments, how it communicates with council, how it communicates with community, because we have got to bring excellence in governance back into the mayor's office. We need a stable, professional, expert team in the mayor's office that is ready to implement ready to execute and I already have the, the skeleton the the work chart laid out and my transition team is getting populated so that we're ready to fill in those positions with experts and hit the ground running as mayor's office because we need to be the most effective best run city in the country and we can do it with the brain power we have here
2: can I just she she went, went into a topic that I didn't address because I didn't, didn't know it was part of the question so I agree with Carrie in terms of We have had, for the last two administrations, a very top-down approach from City Hall. It's like we're going to cook it up in City Hall and then put it down on top of the neighborhoods. I want to flip that. I am very much about grassroots and community-based solutions, whether it's Rainier Beach or here in Finney, wherever we are. uh, Every tour I'm on, people are saying, we have this thing going, and we've been trying to get the attention of the city, and no one's paying attention. If I'm mayor, we're going to be working with community. All
1: right. Carrie, do you want to respond to anything? I'll, I'll save it for later
0: <laughs> okay this one uh, another audience question about property taxes property taxes are smothering older people in seattle if you're elected exactly what would you do to help provide more relief for seniors and
1: who's, who's next carrie i think i I, who's, I think i go first we're, we're getting very good at trading back and forth <laughs> well trained so property taxes for seniors this is absolutely an issue i was in uh beacon hill a couple weeks ago and a Filipino woman, hairdresser, been in that neighborhood for 40 years. It's her community. She's from there. She built the community. Her property taxes are so high, she can't afford to stay, and she can't afford to leave, because where would she go? So we absolutely have to address this issue, especially for older folks, for seniors on fixed incomes. Right now, We have a program where if you're under $40,000 a year and over 65, you can get property tax relief. I wanna make sure every senior knows about that program and is taking advantage of it, and I'm also planning to expand it because we need to look at raising the income threshold so more people qualify. Second, I'm gonna sit down with King County Assessor's Office because we have some leeway in what the assessed values of property are. we, we could stick with market rate, but we don't have to. We could go down to 85% of market rate for your assessed value. So we need to look at getting that number right. I would really push for lowering it. And then third, yeah. Third is really, again, the speculation issue. Our property values are rising much more quickly than is normal. This is not how a housing market is supposed to work. So we need the right disincentive in place to slow down this rapid increase and disincentivize this behavior of outsiders buying up our property, our houses, as if they're commodities. And if we get that activity out of the market, things will get a lot more stable and steady, and the other two solutions I mentioned will be enough.
2: So this is something I proposed before the primary and was the first candidate to say we needed to help seniors. And I proposed a a whole range of things, including going to Olympia and raising the amount of the exemption so more seniors qualify it. It's not enough just to let them know. We've also gotta raise that because the exemption right now, based on the housing prices in Seattle, just isn't realistic. So I've already had conversations with some of our our delegation. I've got a lot of supporters in the delegation who who have endorsed me. I've had some conversations with others in Olympia so that we can move quickly on this because when we come in office already in January the legislature is going to convene we need to have a plan in place to go for a whole range of things to give relief on property taxes the second thing we have to do is not just property taxes but utility rates many seniors qualify for reduced utility rates but most of them don't know it and don't use it so we have to have a very strong outreach to the seniors so they can qualify for those and combined together I have proposed having one portal so that they can go into one portal and determine what are the things that they qualify for as seniors. The other thing is, we hope that the Seattle income tax is upheld, and if it is upheld, we passed it because we think our taxes are too regressive, and they are. We need more progressive taxes, but I'm the only candidate who said, I will take some of that money and pay down the regressive taxes, lower property taxes, lower sales tax, so the people who are making less aren't paying more so one way to reduce property taxes is also to when we get that income tax to not just spend it on programs but to also make sure we're lowering those regressive taxes
3: Moon, is that true that jenny Durkin's the only one
1: who has said income tax should go for paying down the other taxes well i want to just make clear that our system is so underfunded there are so many things we are not paying for we are not paying adequately for school expansion reducing classroom size we're not paying adequately for homelessness services we are not paying adequately for development of affordable housing so I want to pursue much broader range of progressive taxes before we reduce the taxes we have now because we we can't afford to make this revenue neutral at the moment we need to make sure that we are pursuing Capital gains tax at the state level, an income tax at the state level, looking at changing our inheritance and estate taxes so the wealthy are paying their fair share. Until we get to a truly progressive tax system, we can't afford to cut taxes. And just point out that higher earners income tax in our city is only going to generate something like 10 or $20 million. It's a test. It is not something that's going to dramatically change our tax structure. It's just a pilot project. So we can't be promising that we're going to reduce taxes until we have additional revenue to replace what we actually need to spend money on.
3: Um, I'm gonna ask a question that reflects some of the signs you're seeing in the front row here for our gathering. It's about privatizing or pri- having private partners to fund community center and pool uh, capital capital projects in Seattle. Um, the city's strategic plan for community centers proposes turning over management and operation of the Green Lake Community Center and Evans Pool to a private nonprofit such as the YMCA. Um, if elected, and Jenny I think this will be to you first, um, would you support this kind of privatization or would you keep them? under public
2: management thank you for that question they've been at a couple of our forums and we've answered this before so i'm very fond of that gym because i've been basketball in it for years i think it is one of the hearts of green lake and we've got to make sure that it is not privatized in a way that community doesn't have access and control if we can find a way to have people pay for the necessary renovations i am open to that but the key is not to offload our property to someone so the neighborhoods and communities lose access and control to such crucial facilities. That's the number one thing. So that would be my position on that. And I think, again, I'm I'm gonna go back to my moratorium. I don't wanna, once you give away dirt or a building as a city, you don't get it back. And so there is less and less real estate in this city, and I think the city has to be evaluating every parcel it has before it gives it to anybody. So again, I would have a moratorium until we can evaluate.
1: I'm on your side. I think, um, I, I raised my kids in an 800 square foot apartment. We're now in a huge apartment of 1,200 square feet. We spend a lot of time in parks. Parks are an essential part of our culture in Seattle. They're how we come together as a community and meet our neighbors and share yes. our you know, cultural life together. We absolutely have to keep public facilities, especially parks, in public ownership. And so this is gonna be a funding challenge. It's not easy to just wave a magic wand and say we have the money, but we have to figure out how to find the cost savings. And I'll just point out that in our city, the budget has increased roughly 25% in the past five years since we were at the depths of the recession. And that is a big increase. And I think a lot of us, probably many of you in this room are asking, what are we getting for all that increased spending? So we really have to go through every single department and understand you know, what pilot projects did we take on that are working great and we can scale up, what pilot projects maybe not so good and, and get rid of them or improve them. But we absolutely have to do some belt tightening because we need to deliver more program for the same amount of money. We need to protect our public facilities. We need to make sure we are spending money as efficiently as possible on the most important, most Effective things in our city, and I'm ready to do that. And with my engineering degree and my background managing organizations and operations, I know how to do that. And I'm going to lead the 11,000 employees at our great city through that activity because they know how to do it too. They just haven't been asked to in a while. Great. Uh, so the next
0: bit here is our lightning round, uh, which we're going to call underrated and overrated. <laughs> Uh, usually it's yes no waffle. We thought we'd try something different. But if there's one, <laughs> if, oh, no. uh, if there's one that you want to explain, whether it's underrated or overrated, just raise your hand. You got a minute to explain it. So it's a, it's a we get one. Around. How many are there? Uh, there's about ten. All right. you might want yeah. to wait till
3: the end and decide you if, what you to want end. if you want to talk about.
0: Yeah, all right. Uh, are you ready? Ready.
2: So we can go back and explain a previous yeah. answer. You can. Yeah.
0: yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. Underrated or overrated. First one, Amazon. <laughs> number two, Ballard. <laughs> All
1: right, number three, Weezer's Handmade Cheese. Uh, sorry. <laughs> All
0: right, number three or four, bicycles. Hmm. Waffle. <laughs> <laughs> right. Waffle. In fact, cars. Mm. Yeah. Chamber of Commerce.
1: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: the Socialist Alternative Party. Yeah. <laughs> Smart, Smart Growth. Smart Growth? Smart Growth. Harris. Next one is Hillary Clinton. <laughs> mm. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Bernie Sanders? Oh, <laughs> Alright, two more. The Eagles.
1: I think um, for a city that is attracting so many people because of our beautiful quality of life, our booming economy, and the, this the splendor of nature, people are going to continue moving here. And to keep up with growth, we have got to do a much better job. Smart growth is about the principles of compact growth, of keeping jobs and housing in balance, of building transit with the growth, not forgetting about that and trying to deal with the problem 10 years later. And it's about creating healthy community. As an urban planner, I understand that cities are complex and there's lots of layers, and you've gotta look at all the layers at the same time. You can't focus on one thing, and then the next thing, and then the next thing. That's like a game of whack-a-mole. You've got to really understand how to build growth and how to build healthy society, healthy community, at the same time and so when I say smart growth that's what I'm talking about and it's essential we do it in Seattle we have lost track of the basics of urban planning and now we're in this condition where we have a housing affordability crisis transit is not keeping up with growth people have long commutes they're forced to relocate to the suburbs because they can't afford housing and that means they're stuck in traffic spending more time on the road less time with family we have created all these problems through not planning effectively and we need to bring back Great urban planning in this city and catch up with the growth we already have and get ready for the future
2: so I, I I'd also talk about how smart growth is underrated but I think one of the things that is most underrated in smart growth are humans you know we can do all these plans and all have all these upsums that look really great on paper but people forget about the humans who have to live there and the neighborhoods that have to exist there the kids that have to go to school there and so one of the city things the city's gotten away from is listening again to community and neighborhoods. On these various neighborhood walks I do, I sometimes take the proposed up zone map with me just to see how it's going to change the feel of that neighborhood or that community. And I bet you no one in city Hall has ever done that. I bet you no one at planning has ever done that because they have this one-size-fits-all approach. And if we do this smart planning and smart growth, we really have to be thinking about how does it feel in those neighborhoods and communities. That's what smart is. Where will people walk? How will they get to transit? Where will they bike? Are there even crosswalks? Are there sidewalks? Um, And I think way too many times planners, including urban planners, love to have all these designs and engineering about how things are gonna go just great. And then when the humans get there, it doesn't work that way. And so I think we really have to be listening more to neighborhoods and communities about how they live and how they wanna live. Not just today, but for that next generation. If we squint our eyes and think about what Seattle's like in 40 years, we want it to be a city that is vibrant, that every community people can live in, regardless of whether it's low income, middle income, or market rate housing, and no one knows the difference. That around our transit, there's great plazas that people get, there's cafes. So for me, smart growth, it's all about how are we gonna live there. How will we raise our kids there? Is it a city we can
0: be proud of because it's inclusive and welcoming and forward leaning? All right, and uh, we wanted to give you each a chance to ask the other candidate a question. And we're sort of running out of time for audience questions, so keep your answers to these somewhat rhetorical questions somewhat (laughs) short. Oh, sorry, Jenny.
2: So, my question to you, Carrie, is you have had a lot of civic experience in the last five to ten years in Seattle and you've been involved in the waterfront and fighting the tunnel and different planning. What project did you bring to completion based on your leadership and how many people did you manage?
1: I love this question. Good. So first of all, 20 years not five to ten. I've been here since 1997 doing planning work did the Pioneer Square Neighborhood Plan back in the 90s. I think a lot of you were probably involved in neighborhood planning, which was a great process. And I was involved as a professional helping guide the neighborhood through that. I launched the People's Waterfront Coalition, which laid out the vision and the aspiration of a 22-acre civic space on the waterfront, and earned so many awards for that, from Real Change, Change Agent of the Year, to the Stranger's Genius Award, to the AIA Award for city planning, to Metropolis Magazine gave me a big award for it. I am really proud of that work because it's sort of the mushy work that happens before a project becomes public. You have to sort of scope the opportunity, build the public will, create the possibility, build, bring people together, a coalition of dozens of organizations and thousands of citizens by the time we got to the point of launching the city's waterfront project. So I'm incredibly proud of that collaboration because that's you, know, you don't build a city by top-down, heroic effort. You build a city by building public will, by bringing people together, by building momentum, by figuring out the strategy, by executing the strategy, and that's what a mayor does. That's the executive's job. You set the vision, you champion the vision, You empower city employees to be part of it, you include city council, so we're all pulling in the same direction. And that's exactly the kind of work I know how to do, both through that coalition, through the planning work I've done, through the dozens of times I've worked with city departments on the design commission, on oversight boards, on... Committees, I have worked with this city for 20 years and I know city building is a collaborative effort because we all have the right to shape our future destiny. We all in Seattle want to be part of identifying what the future of our city is. And that's the kind of coalition and collaboration I know how to lead together. In addition, I have managed about the same number of people you have in my family business. There were 100 people. I think you managed 120, so it's not really that different. And I think we both bring different kinds of executive leadership to this, but I, I am very proud of my resume, very proud of my accomplishments. Great so, but, no, but, my,
2: but my question was, what did you bring to completion? And my, I think what I heard was nothing. Okay, I think
1: we should... Did any of those things get done? uh the waterfronts being built right now and i'm incredibly proud of you know, setting the initial vision and all the people who have come to it it's now a city project so it is being built and i just want to make the point again city building is not a top down i did it all by myself enterprise like you kind of intend implying that it is it's a collaboration and we all work together and i'm proud of that do you have a question for virginia yeah, so Seattle voters overwhelmingly approved by 70% an initiative to protect hotel workers on the job from sexual harassment and making sure they kept, they, could have act, they were paid fairly, and many of these people were immigrants and women of color, and I think with percent, 77% yes, there was pretty strong opinion in Seattle, this is the right thing to do. But you are the only candidate who wouldn't sign the pledge to enforce this and protect it against lawsuits by the major hotel chains. And you also have received money through your PAC, $85,000, no, $50,000 out of $850,000 from these major hotel owners who are fighting against protections for workers. So how are you going to make these Sorry, what do, you, what do you think these big corporations are paying hundreds of thousands of dollars to elect you for? Perfect. I want to point out a few things.
2: You've seen Carrie Moon. She never has to talk from a written note. But now she's asking a question her consultants wrote for her. And I want to give you the answer because I think it's a fair question because people have thrown a lot of numbers and mud around. In fact, the woman asked me about it when I came in. Number one, I voted for that because I think it's the right thing to do. I think we want to protect hotel workers, and I think it was the right thing for Seattle to do it. Number two, the thing she's talking about, the form, she knows full well. It was at a forum and an interview of candidates in the primary where I wasn't even there. I couldn't go because of a family obligation. So they had everyone who was in the room sign it, and then they released it to the press without even talking to me with a press release saying Jenny wouldn't sign. So it was one of those political gotchas that is in the silly season. Um, So I will stand up for hotel workers any day of the week. I will protect them like I did when I was U.S. Attorney. I brought human trafficking cases to go against people who were exploiting people and as mayor I will work with the city attorney's office, the police department to make sure our laws are enforced because we will protect our workers. It's why the Service Employee Union is is backing me, while nurses are backing me, and firefighters, and dock workers, because they know I stand up for workers, and I am so proud to have their backing. And every time someone wants to paint me as a corporate shill, it's silly, because the people supporting my campaign, the volunteers, the hundreds of them that are out this weekend knocking doors in the pouring rain, and the workers that have backed me after they sat down and talked to me, I couldn't be more proud and I will go every day to City Hall and I will fight for them, I will fight for what they believe in.
3: So this is an audience question about Seattle's climate goals in terms of reducing emissions. Um, the city is not on track to meet the goal it set in 2013 right now with the Climate Action Plan, and an audience member wanted us to ask, what should Seattle's role be in climate protection? Jenny, this is
2: for you. We've got to be the leaders in climate protection. we got to go back where Seattle is harnessing the green energy skills that we have here, I just talked to former mayor Greg Nichols about this very thing because he had led the way and then we kind of abandoned that process working with other mayors. We have to look at the way we're doing our city ourselves. You know, I have proposed, for example, electrifying our uh, own fleet because two of the largest em- carbon emissions in Seattle are the efficiency of buildings and our transportation system. So if we electrified the city fleet, the taxi fleets, the car share fleets, and then try to reduce single occupancy vehicles in total, get more people on transit and buses, we, we would really move the dial on this. So I think we not only have to lead here in Seattle by leading, we will lead the, the country and we will show Donald Trump he was wrong to back away from this.
1: So Seattle, can be a climate leader again. And I am proud to be the mayor who was endorsed by the Sierra Club and dual endorsed by the Washington Conservation Voters because they understand my deep commitment to climate change. I have worked on transit planning and city planning largely for this very reason because I (coughs) understand climate as the, the threat to our future, to our children's future. So we absolutely have to establish a strong stance and make sure we are showing the rest of the country what can be accomplished at the city level. Because the other Washington is not leading, they're doing the opposite of leading by dismantling the EPA and rolling back the good regulations that we do have. So we have to show the world, the country with a coalition of mayors working together that we know what to do at the city level. And so that means investing in transit so that because 40% of our emissions comes from that come from the transportation sector. We've got to give people great alternatives to driving and shift as many folks as we can towards transit, walking, and biking, because that's how you move the most people through our very limited streets, and that's how you reduce emissions long-term. We also need to focus on solutions like district energy. We need to get rooftop solar at every community center and every public building. We need to really focus on how do we get more electric vehicles, more people using electric vehicles because that's part of the problem too, although transit is the more important part of the solution. And we also need to focus on you know our built environment. We know that the second highest source of emissions is uh, heat in buildings and so we need to make sure we are setting high standards for building efficiency, but also expanding our innovation. You know, we invent so many things here, we invent so many technologies here, but frankly, Vancouver, BC, and Portland have both lapped us on the number of innovative zero energy buildings they're building. So we need to make sure we increase those incentives and reclaim that title as the innovator on climate in the Northwest in Seattle. Uh,
0: This is another audience question, which I think is a somewhat related question, probably not written by the same person, as the last one. This is to carry first. uh, first, uh, What about the lack of parking options for new apartment
1: developments? Mm -hmm. (laughs) So we need to be building more transit. We should have built more transit 20 years ago, 10 years ago, two years ago. We are still catching up to the demand for car trips. So that is the priority, because the more you can build transit, the more you can build protected network, a full network of protected bike lanes, The more you can make walking safe with Vision Zero and other strategies, the more you can help people shift to these other modes. And once we get those modes working, once transit is the most reliable, fast, convenient, and cheapest way to get around the city, then we can look at reducing parking. But we're in this transition phase right now where we don't have the transit and we don't we don't offer people alternatives to driving and so we're kind of stuck in this limbo of not enough places to park but not enough transit so i think we need to focus on investing in transit keep reducing get rid of parking minimums and keep reducing parking parking maximums but we also have to manage that curbside space really effectively in the commercial districts because people get rides places, people do deliveries. We need to make sure the space is balanced for commercial drop-off and delivery, and delivery, as well as parking, short-term parking, for the commercial enterprises. Because we absolutely have to protect our small and local business districts. We've got to make it easy for people to come shop, and we've got to make that street experience great for all users. And so part of urban planning is understanding what to do with that very limited real estate of the street grid. And that's something I'm going to do a lot more um, fine-grained work with neighborhoods on. How do we get that right for every neighborhood? You're not answering
0: the question, Jerry. Right? Uh, uh, it's very specific. You didn't answer to uh, Jenny, on. the the question to you about the lack of parking options for new developments?
2: So I think we have the city in the future we want, which is the city where fewer people get around in cars, transit's better, bus line's better, there's jobs right in the neighborhoods. But we're not there yet, and so what we're doing now is we're building the city of the future, but we're not taking into the impact. So this parking is one of the examples. Um, We are letting developers make more money by building to the lot line and not including parking, and then they don't pay any impact fees. And I just say you can't have it both ways. So I think if you're, gonna, if you're gonna be building buildings today that are that building of the future which we want, which are less car dependent, the reality today is what it does is it hurts neighborhoods, it hurts small businesses. So if you're gonna give developers that money, then they've gotta pay some impact fees so the neighborhood has reduced impact.
3: So they need to include parking or pay an impact fee. Is that, is that Correct. That and Carrie, what's
1: your take on that? We need to invest in transit, and I'm not for parking minimums. And we need to make sure that we are providing the transit that people need to get around. Because part of growing more densely means people have to shift to transit. We simply don't have room for everybody to take their car everywhere they go. We know that doesn't work. Okay, great. Uh, So, um, this question will go to Jenny first and we
3: would be remiss if at any event, if we did not talk about homelessness, um, this is an audience question. How would you get people sheltered and how do you define shelter?
2: Such a great question. It is such a heartbreaking thing. I think everyone in this room has struggled with this because here we are, this great city with so much prosperity and yet we have people living on our streets in greater numbers and we need both short-term shelter, which is shelter people can stay in for shorter periods of time, but we need lots more long-term homes and housing solutions. So I have proposed two specific things to create more short-term shelter, and one of the solutions is based on people in this room stepping up and our community stepping up, which is I have said every single council district should be able to provide three to four hundred new shelter beds. It could be in a community center, it could be in places of faith, it could be in nonprofits. The communities come together in the the council districts and decide, but if we did that, we would immediately add one thousand additional shelter spots to take people off the streets, out of tents and out of cars. In addition, I have proposed in my first year, I will begin siding and break ground on a thousand new tiny houses Yeah, and they will have insulation and electricity hopefully plumbing and compostable toilets some kind of facility with them so again it's not a long-term solution let's not fool ourselves that's not a home but it is better than a street a tent a car um, and then what we'll do is, while we're having this, that will take some relief. That's about 2,000 new shelters, but shelter space in a short period of time. We need more low barrier shelters. We have a shelter system that was set for the 70s, 80s, and 90s. We're a changed city. We need shelters where family groups can go, where couples can go, where people can store their stuff and not be kicked out at 7 o'clock with everything they own. So we, out, we not only need more shelter space, we need a different kind of shelter space and while we're creating it we need to create as much affordable housing and supportive services as quickly as we can and i want to tell folks because i don't want there to be surprised if i'm mayor i have said consistently i will not talk about raising any new tax until i see whether our budget is being spent smartly but the place i think i will have to come back to you on and hopefully regionally and maybe statewide is more money for addiction services and mental health services because we will never get ahead of our problem on the streets if we don't have more places to help people.
1: So this is one of those areas where we see the symptoms, but we are not addressing the root causes. In our state, we are 50th out of 50 for how much money we invest in mental health services. That's unconscionable. We've got to work with partners in Olympia to make sure we are offering people the support they need and the addiction services they need because we in our prosperous state prosperous city should not be 50th out of 50. second we need to recognize you know we made this mistake with the 10-year plan to, and homelessness is that we looked at the number of people who are homeless and said oh if we just build 3,000 units of housing we'll be done and we'll never have this problem again but we are actually pushing people into homelessness faster than we are helping them out we have some good programs in the city But we have an economy and a housing affordability crisis that are pushing more people out of stable living situations into homelessness. We've got to go there to help solve the problem. So housing, housing, housing for low-income folks is a huge part of the solution. And then we need every single other kind of low barrier temporary emergency shelter we can. That means tiny house villages like at Othello, like at 22nd and Union. These are self-governed, well-run, Well-serviced with mental health and behavioral health and service providers, like uh, independent communities that are actually a really healthy place for people to go from an unsanctioned encampment to this kind of facility, get back on their feet, and then move on into permanent housing. They are really effective. They work. We know how to do it. We need to scale it up and build 50 more of these villages. And then we need to look at low barrier shelters. We, you know, a lot of people sleeping outside, 90% have said they would come inside if we offered them a place to be. So that means we've got to ask them what they need, working with them directly. And they've all said, we need to come in with our pets. We need to come in with our partners or our family. We don't want to go to a place with bed bugs where we have a mat on the floor and we're kicked out at 6 a.m. We need a permanent place to, store our belongings in a place we can be during the day. So we know what we need, we know what it's going to take to get there, and we need to all work together as a community to provide these kind of low barrier shelters. And then we also need to look at the other innovations. Like there's a project called Compass Crossing, which is better than a tiny house, but it's not a $200,000 per unit, you know, 100-year lasting affordable apartment. It's in between. It's safe. It meets building code, but it's probably not going to last more than 20 years, but it's really cheap and really fast to build. So we need to build more projects like that. So I think we have the know-how, and we have the will as a society to solve this problem, but the city needs to lead because this is something we all need to do together. So faith groups, philanthropists, communities, people who have a lot that's going to be vacant for a year or two because they're not ready to develop it yet. Everybody has to bring what they have to the table, and the city has to be the convener so that we can all solve this problem together. Because imagine how great it will feel if we recognize, if, if we become the city that solved the homelessness crisis by working together to help our brothers and sisters who have been pushed out of their homes.
0: And that's all
1: we have time for for our two exceptional members.